Hey, we want to thank our sponsors, Western Mule Magazine. Ben and Anita Tennyson do an amazing job with their magazine. I've been writing for them for a few years now, and uh, they're great. Look up westernmulemagazine.com and check them out. Well, hello, friends. It's episode 134 of our Everyday Mulemanship podcast, and I'm coming to you from my uh, my living quarters trailer parked in the middle of the desert in Utah. I'm getting ready to do our uh, our famous extreme trail riding clinic, aka our rock crawling clinic. Really excited. Um, folks rolled in last night. More are rolling in today, and we get going tomorrow. I can't wait. Weather should be good. And uh, you know, I love to uh, finish up my year of clinics with this particular clinic. You know, it's good to get back to your roots and, and what you do, what you do and why you do it. You know, uh, as I go all over the world teaching about this mulemanship stuff and working on mules and helping people and, you know, th- this is where it all began for me out here on this desert. You know, th- the reason I need to have a good handle and and the reason I need to have these good stops and a good turn and, 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 you know, really have a mule that's with me, uh, it all started out here because some of this country, man, it can be rough. And this country is very unforgiving. And, you know, if, if you don't have a mule with a, with a decent handle and a mule that's not really with you, man, it can make for a really, really scary day <laughs> on these rocks. So, uh, we're excited for this. It's going to be great. And uh, you guys can be looking forward to a clinic debrief next week sometime when we're finished up with this. So looking forward to it. So first thing I want to talk about is is this uh, little quote that I found, um, and I really like it. Uh, and you know, this basically shaped up for me the process of of what I do and why I do it. So I'm going to share this quote with you. The quote is by Dallin H. Oaks, and it goes like this. Desire dictates our priorities. Priorities shape our choices, and choices determine our actions. Now, this is crucial for me. You know, um, one thing I talk about a lot in our clinics is, is sometimes people will, will do something now and it's going to hinder their future. They're, they're, you know, maybe um, the piece of equipment they use, or maybe how they, how they discipline an animal, or how they go about um, doing something right now. And they'll talk about what they want in the future, and it's very contradictory. For example, one of the most common things I see, and I t- you've heard me talk about this if you listen to very many episodes is uh, folks will come to the clinic and they say, I want my mule to be soft and I want my mule light and responsive and, you know, willing and all these nice fluffy words, they tell me. And then they show up with some kind of contraption on that mule's head, some nose pincher on it and, and some type of crazy lever device and gimmicky thing, you know, and, I say, you, you just told me you want your mule soft and willing. Yeah, I do. Well, every time you touch that rein, you just, you're pinching down on that mule's face or you're, you're pinching its mouth or you're pulling on the pole, you're, uh, you know, whatever. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit their future, you know, or maybe they want, I want my mule to really operate really nice off of my legs. And then I see them just just hooking that thing with their spur, just pounding on that thing. But yet they want their mule really light to their legs. You know, um, think about what you want and think about what your goals are. It's going to make a difference for you. So I'm, let's break this down, you know. So there's four words in this quote that, I, that I've shared with you here that are important. Desire, priorities, choices, actions. Desire. What do you want? What do you want? If you tell me you 
I want the mule light. You tell me you want the mule soft. You tell me you want this willing partnership. You tell me all these things that you're desiring. What do you want? You know, you want to make a bridal mule. Okay? So that's going to that's gonna lead us to our next word here, priorities. All right? If you want to make a bridal mule, you want this softness, lightness, willingness, and all these things we're talking about, what are your priorities? Well, for me, if I'm making a bridal mule, my priorities are going to be to achieve all my education in the snaffle bit, test myself in the hackamore, test myself further in the terrain, and then finally graduate to that high level of bridal. And my priorities are to make the mule, help the mule, to be the best that it can be, to take the time that it takes to get there. Now, the next word is choices. The choices that I'm making along the way on how I do things, you know, how, how, how am I going to do it? And that kind of goes with what I said with my priorities a little bit. You know, how am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to go through these I'm going to go through these levels of education, snaffle, hack, more to rein and bridle to achieve it. And I'm going to make a choice to take that time that it takes. And uh, I'm going to let that mule learn on, on his timeline, not mine. Now, the actions, what are you going to do to achieve this? Well, this might come down to how I pick up on a rein. This might come down to how I use my leg. This might come down to the amount of time I give the mule to soak after I work on something. So I really like that quote because, you know, it seemed to fit a lot of what I do and how I'm going about to to do things. And not just with mules, but in life too, you know. Desire dictates your priorities. Priorities shape your choices. Choices determine our actions. So, I like that quote. We got a whole bunch of great questions today. I'm going to jump into these now. And um, a lot of good questions. I appreciate you guys sending in your emails and asking your questions. And I hope that uh, my answers are helpful to you in some way. We got questions all over the place here today. So, it's going to be good. The first question comes from Janine Miller. When rolling the hinds, my mule tends to move just her hoof, not completely crossing over in the front of the other hoof. Suggestions, thanks. Uh, Janine, um, you know, w- when the mule just, when you're trying to roll the hinds, um, you know, we're trying to get, say say you're sending the mule to the left. And so you're going to roll the hinds from left to right. And what you're looking for is the left hind leg to step over and in front of the right hind leg when you do this. Now, as you ask for this, you would like that big, deep step. Now, what Janine is saying here is that her uh, her mule is just kind of stepping one hoof, meaning they kind of scoot over a little bit. Um, this is a little indicator of some brace, Janine. You know, when that mule really steps across real nice and, and deep through that step, then you know that things are coming together and there's not a lot of brace there. And likely you have pretty good lateral flexion. When they're just kind of scooting across like you're describing here, uh, you probably are lacking some lateral flexion. The mule's probably rigid through their body. Um, I have never seen one that had good lateral flexion and was real flexible through the body just step, just kind of scoot over like you're saying here. So check on that lateral flexion. What you can do is that as that inside hind leg leaves the ground, you can give that rein just a little bump and kind of try to tip that nose toward you. At the same time, you can do a little driving toward the hip. Try to get that foot to step over. When they step just sideways or especially when they step behind, that is that is a sign that they are bracing in some way. Well, there's a couple of tips I just give you on how to fix it, but also be sure to reward them when they finally do step across. So the, the move that we primarily teach is to roll the hindquarters and return to your circle. And this is both in the ground, on the ground or in the saddle. But, you know, you can break this down further, both 
on the ground or in the saddle where you could just roll the hinds and stop. And that seems to help build some understanding too. Uh, sometimes the mules need that. They need that instant quit to, to know they're on the right track. Hey, Janine, thanks for the question. All right, next question comes from Scott Nichols. Working with a six-month-old mule, can you explain why you would or would not introduce them to short transitions in the round pin? Yeah, Scott. Um, so with with these weanlings, six months old, they're still a weanling. You know, I am not going to work on transitions at all with these babies. You know, all I do with my my young mules up until they're about a year, year and a half old. Well, even maybe even further than that, maybe until they're two or yeah, two or three. All I do is the basic groundwork checklist on the end of my halter. So that's clearing the front, center circles, roll the hinds return, roll the hinds roll the front. I'm just mostly trying to build a good feel in that lead rope. The transition stuff will come easy later. The other thing, you know, especially in the round pin, you know, they're, they're having to have a lot of lateral bend as you're sending a colt a baby around in this round pen going through the transitions, you know, and their, their physical makeup is just not ready to take that. So even if it's in short sessions, even if you're just doing a little bit of it, um, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not taking the time with my Colts to do that. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to hinder anything in there. And also, you know, just little sessions of groundwork, just, and I'm talking five minutes. Five minutes of groundwork is plenty for these little babies. Five minutes may even be too much for a six-month-old. Um, they'll get more out of being out in the pasture. And out there, they can run a little bit. They can buck and play and do their own thing without me kind of hustling that or stressing them in some way. See, when they're out there in the pasture and they're running around, doing their own little transition work, so to speak, they can shift up and down with their own comfort. Um, they're not moving out of fear, even if they feel pain. Um, if they feel a little pain out there, if they, you know, if they get a little sore out there, they'll just stop. They'll take care of themselves. Those babies will. And so even though they might get plenty of exercise out there and you think, well, geez, a little, just a couple little rounds in the round pen can't be too bad. Well, there's better things for you to focus on. Um, just that groundwork. That's what I'd be doing. So anyways, it has to do with the, the physical makeup of the mule, Scott. That's mostly why I wouldn't. Also, I got a lot of time. Also, one last thing I'll mention is these babies, you know, mentally they are not mature yet. And, and they are so easily put over onto the instinct, Scott. Uh, you know, w when you put a little pressure on them, they easily divert to instinctual mode. So that sends them right into the flight or fight, but usually flight with these youngsters. And, um, you know, I've not had some great experiences doing a lot of work with youngsters, put, putting too much pressure on them. It's not going well for me. Um, so I would just let them mature, just do a little bit of work. Um, you know, I wouldn't do any of the hooking on process necessarily. Um, I wouldn't do any of the transition work in the round pen necessarily until until they're probably two and then you can start some of that it shouldn't be that big of a deal thanks for the question scott all right next question comes from miss kate vassal over in colorado kate says i have two questions for you i am working with a horse colt and we are on the brink of the first ride first question what is the reason you choose to use only the halter and lead for the first ride uh, before starting to use a snaffle? Second question, as I continue this horse's education, how do I prepare him for life as a fleet horse? He'll be part of a string used by multiple people with varying skills, abilities, and knowledge. He is so light and coming along great, but I'm not training him for me. There is a great chance that in his life he will mostly be used uh, by folks who only know how to kick, to go, pull, to stop, and expect a neck rein response without use of seat and leg. Thank you in advance for sharing your insights. P.S. I'm super excited to come to Utah and ride with you in April, trying to decide which meal to bring. God bless. Thanks, Kate. Um, all right. First question. Um, 
why do I ride in the halter for the first couple rides and not the snaffle? So the main the main reason, okay, because I will hang a snaffle bit on my colts before I ride them. So if I'm planning to ride a colt next month, for example, I'm going to start putting that snaffle bit on that mule every day, just for a few minutes every day. Maybe they carry it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes a half hour, sometimes an hour. But I'll, I'll let them start packing that snaffle bit. No reins on it, just the snaffle bit. And help them to just get familiar with carrying that bit. And let them play with that. They'll get their tongue over it, under it, all around. Let them do that. A lot of times we put the snaffle bit on too quick. And we go right to pulling on them. I see this all the time. People put a snaffle bit on, or, or any bit, any bit. And they go right to pulling on them. And shoot, this that tongue's everywhere. The mule's uncomfortable mentally and physically and uh, it doesn't go that great um so i let them carry it then when i do my first couple of rides the reason i use that halter and lead rope instead of the snaffle bit is is if there's any trouble whatsoever i i want to make sure i do not pull on that mule that colt i do not want to pull on them now even me with all the experience that I've been blessed to have and all the things that I've been able to do and all the cults I've been able to ride, I still don't trust myself not to want to pull back. When you have that snaffle bit, you know, and if you're, if you, especially for folks that are little, little less experienced, you know, less experience means until you've started, you know, at least a thousand cults, um, you know, you, you're going to have some tendencies to want to pull on them and to, to have different physical reactions to their physical reactions. And you can do quite a lot to initiate some problems pulling on a colt. You know, you get to pulling on them, and it's real easy for them just to set up and buck. Uh, you know, I've told this story in my clinics, and I probably told it here on the podcast, but I'll mention it right now. You know, when I was rodeoing, <clears throat> um, and I went to college, and I was rodeoing for the famous Louis Field fields and um great man he taught me so much just a great mentor great human uh you know he he taught me a lot and you know when i went into to college i had you know primarily just started cults with my dad and you know any anytime a colt kind of wants to kind of wants to to buck well you just get your arm out to the side and you just kind of bend them around and roll roll the hinds around and and kind of break that uh, momentum. And uh, that's what I did. So, you know, I had this bad habit. Here I am rodeo now, getting on broncs, and the broncs would jump out of the chute, and I'd just go to pull into the side, and I'd get all these broncs to turn turn back on me. And also, I was, I was especially some of these lighter practice horses that I was getting on that are not like, they're not dirty buckers. <laughs> you know, they're not really intense buckers they're just practice horses just little hoppers and uh i'd pull them around and i'd kind of get them to kind of you know fade off and and linger and kind of quit and louis said man you got to stop doing that he's every time he said Ty, every time you jump out of the chute you pull that horse around to the side and it kind of quits and unless it's a really good bucking horse I, i'm kind of ruining it you know and he said hey, you're a bronc rider your job is to Help these horses, you know, help these bucking horses buck as good as they can, because the better they can buck, the better your score is going to be. And so he said, what I want you to do is this time. When that horse jumps out, I want you to pretend like you have two reins. Pretend like you have two reins and you're pulling straight back on both reins. And when you pull back on both reins on a young horse, you know how they set up and buck? I said, yeah, I know that. He said, well, that's what I want you to do with these saddle bronc horses. Pull your reins straight back. Pretend like you have two reins and pull back on them. And that'll really get them to buck. You know, sure enough, it did. Then he, he changed my rodeo career, being able to, learning to lift on my rein in that manner. Now, now, let's click back over to our mulemanship and our colt starting. Now, we don't want them to buck. So you need to do opposite of what I just said, right? If I was to pull back straight on, a, on these colts, of course, it's going to, just like Louis said, it's going to help them set up to buck. We don't want that. They feel trapped. They push on that when that happens. They push on uh, on you and they pull on you because you're pulling back on them. Don't give them anything to brace on. They won't brace on anything. 
So I start them in that halter and lead rope. If there's any little issue, of course, when I first get on, they don't know anything anyways. I can't even bend them to the side when I get on these days. Um, but, uh, you know, through the groundwork I've done, they might have a little idea at least. They might have a little idea. So when I tip their nose to one side or the other, I might be able to roll those hinds around. Now, I so I do this to protect the colt mostly from me maybe pulling too much, pulling too hard. It also gives me a chance to feel of that colt if they are real sensitive. That's great. Um, and, and it helps me kind of get a, a real true feel before putting that snaffle bit on. Because the snaffle bit helps you more than the halter does. You know, it, it it's more it's more signal. The, the the snaffle is a lot more signal than the halter is. So so you know, if I pick up on that right rein and snaffle bit, for example, they fill it on the right bar as well as the left lips because the ring on the left side pushes against the lips. So they're filling it on both sides. You know, your halter they only you're only just using the outside. Um, so those are some things that I consider. Uh, and just let them kind of go, you know, and, and it's also a reminder using them in that, just that lead rope and that halter. And I don't even tie my lead rope. I just have it on one side it, to remind myself that this colt knows nothing. It's just a baby. It knows, it knows nothing. So don't expect it to know how to turn and know how to back and know how to stop. Don't expect those things. It doesn't know how to do those things. So it kind of helps me just to stay freed up and and especially in the cult starting classes, I've realized it helped people to just stay freed up and not expect anything. Now, the second question, um, you're, you're preparing a horse to be a fleet horse. So Kate works for the Forest Service. And so likely this horse is going to be used by all kinds of people. And uh, a lot of people that will just get on that horse and just ride it and won't have much horsemanship going on. Um, it's a good thing people like Kate and other people that are in the Forest Service are coming to these clinics and get some education. Hopefully, Kate, you can pass that on to some of your coworkers because I've seen a lot of Forest Service folks that, man, they'd be better off just hiking in. Um, so I'm glad you're sharing this knowledge with your coworkers too. You know, you're going to help this horse be the best that it can be. And so even though you know it's going to get pulled on and it's going to get pushed around and it's going to get kicked to go and pulled to stop, like you're saying, and and it's not going to be ridden by people with a lot of education, you're going to still work this horse to be the best that it can be. So you're going to get it up to this highest level because you know that your coworkers are going to bring that level down. So don't ride it with the attitude that, oh, it's just going to be a plug, so we'll just ride it like a plug. No, you need to ride it like it's going to be the best horse of all time, like it's going to be a phenomenal animal, because all your coworkers are going to get a hold of it, and they're going to ruin it, and they're going to bring it way down, and then you need to get back on it bring it way up. It's no different than me with my my children and and these meals for the kids, Right. Uh, me and Sky try to ride uh, our daughter's mules, our Chrome and Tina. All right. Some of you listening have been to clinics and you know who those mules are. And Ellie and Swayze enjoy riding those two gals, you know, but um, that's, those are my daughter's mules. Okay. Chrome was once a finished bridal mule. She was straight up in the bridle. Amazing. Tina never really achieved that level. Uh, she did. She she graduated out of the snaffle bit, but that's about as far as she, she really went in her life. So any chance that me and Sky get, we get on Tina and Chrome and we work and we try to keep that knife sharp because the girls get on it and it dulls the knife and, and they pull and they'll kick and they kind of let the mule do this, let the mule do that. And so we got to get back on, tune it up. So basically, your coworkers here at the Forest Service, Kate, are like are like your children, okay? And and you're gonna have to treat this horse as your kid's horse, and you're gonna have to get on this horse, and you're gonna have to tune it and help it to be the best that it can be, so that when they get on it and they kind of mess it up, they can still get along. Because if you have this horse at a high level and you're doing a really good job with it, when they get on it, they'll get along just fine. But what I see a lot of people do, and, and this is unfortunate, I see this a lot, especially in the sales world, people selling meals. 
they know that this mule is just going to go be a plug, you know, that's you know somewhere, just poke down a trail. And so they all they do is prepare it to just plug down the trail. Then the people get it, and they don't ride it that well, and it goes downhill from there. So remember, whatever level you get that horse to, these coworkers or some of you listening that do have kids, those kids, those coworkers, those other people, they're going to knock that level down. And it's your job to keep that level high enough that they always, that the horse and or the mule is always able to help that inexperienced rider get along so that they can stay safe. They can do, do all right, get their job done. So anyways, hope that uh, helps you, Kate. I appreciate the question. Um, we're going to take a quick break right now and thank one of our great sponsors. And we'll be right back. I need to thank my friend, Mr. Ben Lewis at Roman Home. Mr. Ben has designed a really awesome tent. It's a cross between a wall tent and a range teepee. It's built to take tough weather, high winds. Craftsmanship is amazing. And it's made right here in the USA, right here in Utah, USA. And uh, right now, Ben has a special going on. You can save 500 bucks and uh, go to romanhome.com. Roman spelled R-O-A-M-I-N, romanhome.com. And uh, tell Ben hello. Tell him Ty sent you. All right, we're back with our Everyday Mulemanship podcast, and uh, we're taking questions right now. Next question comes from Karen Frogner. Hello, Ty. I have two questions today. Number one, how can I best improve the quality of my mule's walk downhill? Rowdy is five years old, just started to undersaddle this summer. We did the foundation clinic with you and John Day, Oregon. Um... Rowdy was raised in Kansas, and consequently, he probably had very little experience moving his body up or down hills. I noticed early on when hiking with him out on the trail, he would become annoyed when walking downhill. Annoyed manifesting as tossing his head and charging off sideways into the bush. <laughs> uh, this behavior has continued to persist, maybe improving slightly as we have spent more time mostly riding uh, mostly now riding on the trails. All right, let me answer this first question before I go on to the next work, uh, the next question here. Um, okay, five years old. Uh, for sure, the youngsters have a hard time balancing themselves going downhill. Um, this is one reason I do like to pony my mules uh, as much as I can going downhill, uh, you know, carrying a saddle before I go out and I ride them. So if you can, do as much ponying as possible with your youngsters, you guys to help them learn how to go downhill. Uh, it's normal for them to get kind of wonky uh, going downhills, all right? This is going to happen with the youngsters. Um, if you have even the slightest bit of discomfort applied to the mule's back, maybe your saddle slides up a little bit. Maybe your saddle pushes on their shoulders a little bit, um, whatever. That can cause, even if it's not a significant pain, even if it's just a little discomfort or the saddle's uncomfortable on their back, that can cause them to, get a little goofy going downhill too. They got to also build some muscle. Uh, you, I'm sure if this is a five-year-old mule, I'm sure it has a teeny little hip. Most of these mule colts don't have a great hind end to them to really hold themselves up and hold themselves back and engage the hindquarters going downhill. Build up the hindquarters as much as you can. The more you can roll the hinds, the more you can move the, the hips, and build that muscle, the better he's going to go downhill for you. And the other thing I like to do is play the game of thirds. Um, sometimes it turns into eighths. Sometimes it turns into sixteenths. I don't know. But basically, this is it. So I will go, I, I will start at the top of the hill. I like to I like to do this from the, the uphill side. So I'm, I'm at the top of the hill. I'll start going down. Now, the second the mule maybe tosses his head a little bit, or, or even if you, if you can be better at reading your mule, that would be great because they do stuff before they toss their head before they do stuff. But, you know, maybe you see that ear start to kind of pinch together a little bit. Maybe you start, you see the head raise, whatever you see, when you start to see those, those changes in there. And if you miss them, then just wait till he tosses his head. You'll see that for sure. I'm going to turn the mule around. I'm going to roll the hinds all the way around. I'm going to go back to the top of the hill. 
And then when I'm at the top of the hill, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back down. I don't rest at the top of the hill, really. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back down the hill. And maybe I, I call it the game of thirds because maybe you made it a third of the way down and you go <clears throat> third of the way back up. But like I said, it may turn into sixteenths. You never know. Uh, so I'm going to go back down the hill again. I'm going to go as far as I can until I start to see the mule being uncomfortable. Turn around and go back up. Of course, check your gear. Make sure your saddle is indeed set correctly. Make sure your britching is adjusted correctly. Make sure everything's looking good. Make sure you're riding correctly. You need to stay vertical and help them out. Don't sit, don't sit so heavy in the saddle. You know, you're trying to help them. Anyways, you're going to go up and down like this, and it may take you thirds or, like I said, sixteenths, but you're going to go up and down until the mule is comfortable going down the hill fully. So you might go halfway down, turn around, have to go halfway up. Then you come halfway back down, maybe you're three quarters of the way down, have to go back up again, but you're going to go up and down this hill. What I see a lot of times with people that have trouble going up and down hills is they'll just get to the bottom of the hill then they ride on so they don't really address it don't really fix anything don't really help that mule get comfortable sometimes with these colts it's just awkward packing you downhill so it might have not have anything to do with pain might not have anything to do with pain or discomfort they just might feel odd packing you downhill your weight because they can barely hold themselves so i had a lot of mules that, that aren't packing anything i'm just leading them downhill and they get wonky and goofy, just just bare. So anyways, I'm going to address it that way. The other thing you can do is from the bottom of the hill is back up the hill slightly. So find a nice, slight little, a slight incline, not super steep, and ask that mule to back up the hill. Now, this may be a lot for the five-year-old, but um, you learn to engage those hindquarters by backing uphill. They'll They'll have to pull with those hindquarters. Once the mule realizes how to use the hindquarters to go up or downhill, oh, it's a game changer. Okay, now on to Karen's second question. Is there any specific criteria prerequisite to transitioning from groundwork exercises performed in a halter to groundwork uh, in a snaffle bit with a Makati? My main concern is preserving the softness and feel in the mouth. Could there be some confusion for the mule since the Makati lead is attached to one side of the bit that the fill is inaccurate. Thank you for all you do. I really enjoy your clinic debrief podcast. It is enlightening to hear how you perceive the clinic experience. Looking forward to seeing you and your family next year in Oregon. Okay, Karen, um, is there a specific criteria or prerequisite um, before I can do my groundwork and my snaffle bit Makati setup? Yes. Basically, I need to be able to do my groundwork completely on a loose rein, Karen. So you shouldn't have to worry about preserving the softness and or feeling the mouth through the snaffle bit at all because if you're doing your groundwork in the snaffle bit, it will be completely on a loose rein. So your groundwork is rocking and rolling. It is doing really good. If there is still tension in that rein or if there <clears throat> is tension built, or put in there when you go to roll the hinds or roll the front, for example, or do any of that, don't do it in the snaffle bit. Then they're not ready. But once you can do all your groundwork checklist it with a loose rein, then yeah, you can do it in the snaffle bit, no problem. So it takes a little while, it takes a few months, but but uh, yeah, you can get it done. All right, next question. Uh, Katrina from Alberta, Canada. Hi, Ty and Sky. What is the best hay for mules? We just got our four mules last winter, and we were initially told they needed to eat mostly straw. I quickly found out that they needed good quality grass hay with no or little alfalfa and little if no straw at all. I just got a nice Timothy hay, but it's coarse. Is that okay for their teeth? Also, do mules uh, do better if they are not let out to pasture or in case, or in our case, the forest with not much rich grass there? I read that they do better in smaller contained enclosure. Uh, we just let them have free time in the forest as they like, nibbling leaves off the trees and ground, and we offer hay and water at the barn so they are at home a lot, eating and drinking and training. Thank you for your time. All right, Katrina. Um, you guys, this is, this is where I feel bad for a lot of people that um, are just getting into meals and they find a lot of their information out on the Google search. Um, and it's amazing how 
you know, I will give you one piece of advice and then you'll talk to another trainer or clinician and they're going to give you a completely different set of instructions. Uh, I'm sorry. That's just the way the world goes around because, you know, what I've learned is we're all teaching you from our experience. So when somebody says something in one way, it's often because they had an experience in that way. Now, uh, your mules definitely need more than straw. That they're not going to survive on straw is for bedding. That's not they're they're not going to. There's no nutritional value in straw. So yeah, definitely you got to have more than that. That's not going to do them any good. They're just going to maybe keep from starving to death, but uh, eventually they would starve out on straw. Um. So yeah, for sure. Uh, I feed my mules. I feed especially the mules I'm using a lot. Alfalfa. They eat alfalfa. When I'm on the road, I feed alfalfa cubes, straight up alfalfa cubes. All right. When I'm home, that's the easiest type of forage for my mules to have is alfalfa hay. Uh, it, it's really hard to find good grass hay here in Utah. I would prefer Timothy. So that answers your other question. Timothy is a great grass. It's got good protein in it. And um, if I could find Timothy easier in Utah, I, I would feed that primarily to my mules that are left home that don't work a lot. But any any of my mules that work a lot, I like them. I like them to have energy. You know, the the hard thing, if you're going to use your mules a lot for work, you, you feed them a little grass and you get out riding them and you rode them for a few hours, uh, they burn out on you. They get tired. I like to have that energy, that high sustained energy all day if I can. But I'm willing to deal with that too. Uh, if, if you're not willing to deal with that little bit of heat don't feed them alfalfa if you need them a little lazier a little quieter feed them grass uh, grass is healthier for them everything i've learned and studied grass is healthier for their guts um, their whole digestive system so a good timothy grass orchard grass that's a little high in some sugar but you know it's 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 all right um, a lot of you live in um, in other parts of the country, outside of the Rocky Mountains, you, a lot of Bermuda, you know, uh, grass is, grass is, is, is overall the best for your mules and for the average person riding. Now, if you called, called me and said, Hey, if you tell me you're a working cowboy and you ride every day and you put a lot of miles on alfalfa for sure. Alfalfa is, is, is your, is your key. You know, you may even have to supplement with a little bit of, a little bit of extra feed, to keep that energy and that weight up. Um, but for the average rider that just rides on the weekends, you, you guys ought not be feeding anything other than grass. Hey, so it just depends. Um, <clears throat> like I said, I feed alfalfa, but my mules get used a lot, especially the mules I haul with me. My mules at home, like I said, I wish I could get grass easier in Utah. It's tough. Um, you know, we just have such a short growing season. And farmers in Utah, they'd rather raise, you know, two crops of alfalfa rather than one crop of grass. You know, it's just kind of the way it goes. But the meals I leave home, I would love it if they were just on grass. Now, as, as far as the pasture goes, I don't, that's really funny. Somebody told you not to pasture them and about the small enclosure. You know, equines, the, the, the bigger, the bigger, the better for these equine. Okay. Horses, mules, donkeys, whatever. Give them plenty of room. There's been so many really cool studies done. The more room you give them, the bigger space they have, the better it is for these guys. So give them give them that space. Uh, yeah, it's great for you to put them out on, on your forest pasture. That's excellent. Uh, so, yep. You know, when it comes to feed, there's a lot of myths out there, you guys. And, and there's, maybe it's not so much myths. It's just people's experience. You know, I've, I've seen somebody feed their mule alfalfa and then their mule's freaking hot. And they say, I'm never feeding alfalfa again. Well, you just give candy to a kid. You know, if that's the first time you've ever given them alfalfa and they're not used to that high protein, that's a lot. Um, they kind of got to get used to uh, eating whatever it is you're going to be feeding them, you know? Uh, but Hopefully that helps you answer some questions. You know, when it comes to nutrition, there's some nutrition specialists out there. There's some people that really know what they're doing. Um, a, a company, 
uh, called Stanley. Stanley feeds, Stanley products are all over the, the nation. Um, but they have, they've done a lot of research on this feed for you guys. And there's a lot of free information out there about feed and, and what you should be feeding. And, and, uh, you know, when, when you're asking somebody like me and, and other clinicians and other trainers, um, we are only teaching you out of experiences and, uh, and I, I like the science too. So I try to put a little science in there. I try to put a little research and a little data in there for you. Um, you know, but, but seek some of that, that real, that real focused research about nutrition. And then also I, when it comes to feed, I definitely recommend talk to your vet. This is somebody that is, that is, uh, you know, went to school for these things. And they can also tell you what your mule needs as an individual, you know, because they are very different. And the different breeds need different amounts of feed, different types of feed. You know, it's not too far different from from a lot of us as people. You know, some people can just, I mean, they can eat candy bars all day and they're still skinny as a stick. And the others of us, we, we look at a candy bar and we gain a pound or two, you know, and, and we're all a little different. We all don't eat the same and, and it depends on our physical activity. And that's, that is so important with the animals too. It's not, you can't just put them all in one category of what they should be eating. The physical activity and their metabolism is amazing to, to study. You know, I have a meal called Riata. A lot of you listening will know who Riata is, but you know, that mule is not an easy keeper. She, she's lean um, she eats a lot, um, and she's high energy that meals. I got a lot, plenty of go out here. I was just out here riding yesterday and man, she can go, she can cover some country when I ask her to, you know, um, she eats a lot and I, I couldn't imagine her on, you know, if I just fed her grass, hay, you know, with her metabolism, I don't think that I don't think it'd be enough fuel to keep her going. Um, she needs that alfalfa, you know, um, it, at least for the way I'm using her, the way I'm riding her, which she she does a lot of work. I got another little meal here named Hannah. She's right here in the corral. I'm looking out my trailer window. And Hannah, oh my gosh, um, you probably, you asked about straw. You probably could feed that meal straw. She's still stay fat. <laughs> I don't recommend straw though, you guys. So let's move on here. Uh, Natalie Bacon, how common are saddle scars on mules? It seems they are more common on mules versus horses. Can you talk about horse versus mule saddles? You know, as far as the saddle scars, the, the, the problem with the, with the saddles and mules, Natalie, is that it, they are so hard to fit. Um, I got a pen full of mules. I'm looking out my window at right here. They all have a different back. Um, the downhill is challenging. A lot of mules are downhill. That means their wither is lower than their croup. That's a challenge. Um, you know, even all of the technology that we have, and, and there's some really amazing uh, saddle fitters out there that use a lot of cool technology to get a good fit for your mule. And, but even doing that, you guys, it's not a hundred percent because it can change with weight and it changes with season. You know, if they gain a few pounds or they build their top line up, you know, a little bit, which typically in the summer you'll, you'll build summer, you're building muscle in the winter time. It, it is, it is declining or just trying to maintain, you know, that will change. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't know that I agree with you, Natalie, that it's more common to see some of these white marks on mules more so than horses. I do know that horses are harder to fit, or excuse me, I do know that mules are harder to fit with the saddles than the horses are. But, you know, I mean, out here uh, in this ranch country, you know, you see the, these whole remudas of horses, you know, um, they all got white marks, you guys. When, if, they're, if you're using your animals, and this is, even those of you with an excellent fit, saddle um don't uh, i shouldn't say don't i don't feel too bad if they got some white marks if you're using them a ton um it's gonna happen 
if you're out there using your hands a whole bunch, you're out there working a lot in the garden, you're putting up fence, you know, you're, you're a contractor, you're framing, you know, your hands are going to get some calluses. They're going to be roughed up, you know, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that your gloves fit wrong. It just means that you're using your hands a lot. Now, now I'm not advocating, I'm not saying that if you guys have saddle white marks on your mule, that it's totally okay. I'm just saying if you're, if, if you're, you know, some of you listening right now are, are, uh, you know, I got, I got a friend that listens in Montana that ranches for a living. You know, if he's putting white marks on his, on his horses or his mules, it's cause he's, he's riding, you know, 13 hours a day. You know, a lot of that comes from heat too. It's not so much saddle fit, um, as it is just heat. You can have a great fitting saddle, but you got cinched down all day and you're sitting in that saddle all day long. It's going to create a lot of heat under there. Even on a good fitting saddle, there's going to be some heat created. You know, if I'm out riding at, you know, if all day long at minimum, when I get off and maybe I have a little break for lunch and take a rest for a second, I'm going to loosen my saddle at least. I will probably, you know, I might even unsaddle them and get that saddle off of their back. Um, and just let it kind of air out, let that blood get flowing again under that saddle. You know, that's probably one of the most common things I've seen with creating white marks is just heat. Um, you know, and I have that problem a lot with the mules that I use in my clinics where I just sit on them for three hours and they're not necessarily moving. You know, I'll sit on for three hours and I don't do a lot of moving in there because I'm helping all of you in my clinics. And so they'll get some white marks and it's just from the, just from the heat. Um, it's, it's not even hardly from a bad fitting saddle in, you know, so much as, you know, it's putting major pressure on them and it's just, I'm sitting on them and there's a lot of heat under there and it's restricting some of the blood flow. And so they're going to get some white marks there. That's going to happen. Um, you know, on the horse saddle versus the mule saddle, that's something we could have a whole podcast episode on for sure. You know, if the shoe fits, wear it, if the saddle fits, ride it. I have... I have three different types of saddles that I ride. I got a I got a saddle that has a quarter horse bar on it. I got a saddle that has a, a one one version of the flat bar, aka mule bar. Mule bars are just called flat bars, if you guys didn't know. Um, and I have another version of a flat bar, mule bar. All right, um, just little different little different formulas of little different angles, you know. So I have two saddles that are quote mule saddles flat bars really you guys um that have two different formulas and they fit completely different they're both mule bars so just because because it's a mule saddle or a flat bar doesn't mean it's going to fit all your mules um i got a little mule here named dally and my quarter horse saddle fits her way better than the mule saddles do you know um i got another mule at home that my horse saddle fits better too so don't worry about it i wouldn't label them so much as horse or mule just know that there's all different kinds of formulas of bars. And you guys, there's a lot of really good people out there putting a lot of effort into building this technology and making all different kinds of bars and saddles um, to fit these varying mules. I mean, you know, you look at a big draft mule and then you look at a little cut and, cut and bread quarter horse mule, their backs are very different. It, it's it's going to be a whole different fit. So, it, you know, it's amazing in the horse world. There's all different kinds of, there's all different kinds of bars on these saddles to fit all these amazing breeds of, of horses, but yet we'll just call it a mule saddle in the mule world. And it's supposed to fit all these mules. They're all different. I mean, even donkey to donkey, their backs are different. So what, what I tell people when it comes to saddle fit and things like this is don't get too hung up on it being so perfect. Find a good fit because their bodies aren't going to change as you ride and as you build that top line and as you work and on the seasons. So find a good fit as best as you can and pay attention. Watch it. If you're having things come up, make some changes, make some adjustments, move the saddle a little bit, ride it a little different spot um, and try to help the mule uh, the best you can. Also, a lot of people that are listening right now, you, you know, you may be listening. You say, well, I just ride, I just ride on the weekends. You know, if you're a weekend warrior, that's great. 
And you don't have to worry near as much about having a perfect saddle fit as somebody that cowboys for a living that rides all day long. My friends right now, they're listening that are full-time buckaroos out here in the Great Basin or cowboying up in Montana. You know, you guys need to be worried about your saddle fit. And they do. I have friends that cowboy for a living that, man, all they care, they their gear is so important. They have the best saddles, the best gear. They might drive a, an old beat-up truck that doesn't start most of the time. But I tell you what, they invest their money in good gear. And one thing that does uh, irritate me at times is when I see somebody pull up in a $70,000 pickup truck and, and yet they got this kind of piece of crap saddle <laughs> that doesn't fit worth a darn. And they got gear that are hanging on the mule's mouth, uh, in the mule's mouth that isn't worth a darn, but yet they invest all that money in a, in a brand new pickup. And it's all about priorities. And we mentioned that at the beginning of this episode, but for me, try to get that i try to get that fit as best as i can i have never had a saddle built custom to one mule i've had it built custom to me but never custom to one mule simply because you know i throw my saddles on you know uh, shoot 100 to 100 to 200 mules a year these days i might throw my saddle over so um i don't need it you know to fit one mule particularly if i had just one mule i might be more inclined to do that. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, Roseanne, is the posture leg and rein, uh, <clears throat> seat leg rein signals the same on a horse uh, as a mule? If I took riding lessons on a, on a horse, Western style, can I apply to riding a mule? I just bought a mule a couple weeks ago. Now uh, they're still doing groundwork, but I don't know what the heck I'm doing in the saddle. And we've got a blind leading the blind situation. Yeah, Roseanne. Um, yeah, it, it's all the same. I don't, I don't ride my mules any different than I would ride my horses or my donkeys. I, I ride them the same. So, yeah, seat leg rein positions. It's it's the same. Those those basic skills um, are you can take it from from animal to animal. Um, you know, I've applied those same things to thousands thousands of animals, and uh, you know, as I go do the clinics and all these things. It applies across the board, all all breeds, um, all kinds, all sizes. Uh, yeah. So yeah, if you take if you take some riding lessons, um, you know, Western riding lessons, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great for your meal. So, absolutely. All right. Well, all of you that wrote in, I appreciate you uh, sending me these questions. There were some uh, a great list of questions today. Uh, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you what you think about the answer I give you. Um, and all of you listening, thank you so much for tuning in. If it's not too much to ask, I would really appreciate it if you would leave me a five-star rating if you think I deserve it, uh, if you listen on Apple Podcasts. And those of you that don't listen on Apple Podcasts, I always appreciate it when you send an email telling me what you think about the show. Um, and if you ever have a question, remember you can send it to me, ty at tsmules.com please be sure to put in the subject line question for the podcast and we will try to get it on the show and help you out. Hey, until next time, God bless you. And we will see you down the road.